We all know that Rome wasn't built in a day. The Roman Empire wouldn't have been built at all if it hadn't been for great roads. Interstates have played a critical role in American prosperity. We have 49,000 miles of roads, and between 1980 and 2015, traffic growth has increased by 160%. But now, even a quick read of the future interstate report from the Transportation Research Board shows that if the U.S. were an empire, we might be close to falling like Rome. This is Hard Facts. I'm Eric Kuhn, and with us today is Neil Peterson, Executive Director of the Transportation Research Board and member of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Welcome, Neil. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Eric. Today, we are going to talk about the future interstate report that you were instrumental in guiding after its commissioned by Congress and the Department of Transportation. And I have to say, having looked at the report, it paints a pretty bleak picture. The report says that many interstate highway segments are more than 50 years old and subject to much heavier traffic than anticipated. They're operating well beyond their design life, made worse by lack of major upgrades or reconstruction. They're also poorly equipped to accommodate even modest projections of future traffic growth, much less the magnitude of growth experienced over the last 50 years. Now, that's a pretty realistic assessment that would seem to most motorists to be something that needs to be addressed. But what we're interested in here today is to find out first, what went wrong with the interstate system? Well, the interstate system obviously was a critical element of the transportation system. Many really consider it to be the backbone of the transportation system at the time that it was originally envisioned back in the 1940s and 1950s. It really was transformative in terms of how highway travel took place in the United States. But at the time that it was built, it was really built expecting that it would have a design life of somewhere in the order of 20 or 25 years. And here we are 50, 60 years later. And we really haven't done very much in terms of expanding the system beyond what it originally was built for. And we certainly did not anticipate the amount of growth that has taken place, especially truck travel growth that's taken place on the system. The committee that we put together said it's really time for the nation to recognize the importance of the interstate system, to recognize that It's really facing a perfect storm right now with the issues that you've uh, just outlined. And it's time for us to recognize that we have to make some major investments to both bring it up to what current needs are and to be expecting to be anticipating what future needs are and uh, rebuilding it for that as well. Now, you and your colleagues have very helpfully organized the report into a section that you call 10 Big Ideas. Let's take a look at those, and if you could give us a quick rundown on them and explain how you came about identifying these as the 10 big ideas that need to be addressed for the 21st century. The first is that the committee recognized that we really do need to make the commitment from a financial perspective in terms of making the investments that are necessary, and they recommended that a new program be developed called the Renewal and Modernization Program, or RAMP for short, that 
we dedicate funding to the interstate system itself and make the investments uh, that, that are needed. The second recommendation was what they call developing criteria to right-size the system. And this is looking at several different things. There were metropolitan areas that didn't even exist back in the 1950s that have grown up since that time that are not connected to the interstate system. So we need to have new sections built to be connecting to those metropolitan areas. We have a number of portions of the interstate system that have exceeded the capacity of the system in terms of the amount of traffic and will need to be adding lanes as well. And in some instances, particularly in urban areas where the interstate system was very disruptive to communities that it went through, we need to go in and try to correct some of those actions from the past. Third recommendation is recognizing that the system really has exceeded its design life and particularly pavements and bridges that we need to go in and do a top-to-bottom assessment of the condition of pavements uh, and bridges, identifying where full reconstruction is needed, which will be on a fair portion of the system, actually. The fourth is recognizing that we have to pay for all of this, that in the short term, at least, the most practical way of doing it is increasing the federal motor fuel tax and including in it an inflation adjustment, which we have not had since the time that uh, the interstate system was originally built. The fifth recommendation is related to the fact that tolls are banned except under certain circumstances on the interstate system, recognizing that if we're going to be able to make the investments that uh, are really needed, that Congress should lift the ban on tolling of existing general purpose lanes on the interstate system so that state and local jurisdictions can raise their portion of the funding that is needed. The sixth is moving to some type of per-mile charges, Uh, and this can be for more than just the interstate itself, but as we get more and more fuel-efficient vehicles, as we get more and more electric vehicles uh, using the system, the gas taxes, which are the primary source of funding today, aren't keeping up with what the needs are, and we really should, for the sake of fairness, have something that is directly related to use of the system. Technology is being developed now that we believe that within the next several years, we'll be able to move to a per-mile charging system. The seventh recommendation has to do with the tools that are available right now to be able to track the condition of the interstate system's assets and developing better databases, better modeling tools for both assessing what the current condition is as well as projecting to the future. The eighth recommendation is that as technology is starting to change uh, for the vehicles that use the system and we're moving more and more towards uh, automated and connected vehicles, that we really have to plan for that transition and start equipping the system so that, for example, traffic conditions ahead or weather conditions ahead can be transmitted to vehicles and making a much safer situation. The ninth recommendation is recognizing that we're facing more and more serious storms and weather events on a more frequent basis than when the system was originally constructed, that we need to plan for what we call resilience of the system. In some cases, building larger bridges, in other cases, maybe raising the elevation of the roadway so that we don't have flooding as often as we do. 
And then the tenth and final recommendation is recognizing that vehicles that use the interstate system do contribute to air pollution and particularly to emission of greenhouse gas emissions, that we do need to look for ways that we can be trying to encourage reduction in those emissions as well. I found number 10 interesting in that that almost seems to go beyond the brief in addressing environmental issues. How did you and the committee set the priority order for establishing these 10 big ideas? Well, we were given a pretty specific charge by Congress in terms of issues that they wanted us to be addressing. They actually even specified the expertise that they wanted us to be having on the committee, including environmental expertise. But ultimately, it was the committee that uh, made the decision and trying to look to the future. They were charged by Congress with looking as far out as 50 years in the future in terms of what the needs were going to be. The committee was really a a who's who committee in terms of the expertise that we had available. And they said these are what they considered to be the most important issues, uh, looking out anywhere from 20 to 50 years into the future. Since you've been dealing with Congress, if you had five minutes with, uh, let's say, the 2020 presidential campaign front runners, what would you tell them is the most urgent aspect of the future interstate report? The interstate system has reached the end of the design life that it was originally built for. It is wearing out, much like the human body, when you start to get to 60 to 80 years in life, it requires far greater investments because the system just is not in as good condition as it used to be. We really do need to be making investments in terms of reconstruction of the system to be keeping it as the premier system, as the backbone of the transportation system in the country. We need to be preparing for future in terms of technology that we expect that will be using the system itself. We need to be expanding the system to be accommodating the increased usage that we both have experienced and we anticipate will continue to experience in the future. All of this is going to require leadership. All of it's really going to require vision, return to higher calling of the type that we had when the interstate system was originally built. And we really do need to look to uh, our leaders in Congress and the administration in terms of recognizing that, providing that leadership, providing the investment that is really needed so that we can be keeping the system as the premier system, as the backbone of the transportation system. The alternative, if we don't make that investment, is that we'll have sections of the system that no longer will be able to function. In some cases, we might even have to close down sections if uh, bridges, for example, don't get replaced in a timely manner. And the cost to the economy, cost to consumers will be far greater than the cost of making the investment that is necessary. I know a lot of politicians will look at your priority number one, which is create a federal program to renew and modernize interstate highways, and they will think, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to translate into taxes. Is there a consideration, and can you describe any potential public-private solutions to this issue? There are uh, improvements that are currently being made in certain metropolitan areas on their state system through uh, public-private partnerships where, for example, lanes will be added. They will be added as toll lanes, and the tolls that are collected are used to pay off the bonds that the private companies are using to be financing the system. 
That works in areas where you have very heavy demand, a lot of congestion, and the toll lanes can provide an attractive alternative. But for much of the interstate system, particularly in more rural areas, it's more difficult uh, to be trying to finance it that way. So it's going to require a combination of public financing as well as public-private partnerships to be able to do this. How big a factor that may have been unforeseen is climate change in this entire scenario as far as wear and tear on the system that wasn't anticipated? So we are definitely seeing far more frequent storms, far more intense storms that are resulting in flooding of the system itself. Obviously, some of the hurricanes have shut down the system, sometimes for days or even weeks uh, at a time. And the recommendation that we have regarding resilience is specifically related to the need to be recognizing that the drainage structures that were originally built for the interstate system really were not built to be accommodating these more frequent, more intense storms. So that's directly something that needs to be addressed as we go in and plan for the reconstruction of the system. You mentioned earlier you you wanted to come back to the big idea number nine, which is resilience enhancements. Sounds a little bit like plastic surgery for the interstate system. Can you give us a little more detail about what some of these enhancements might involve? So after Hurricane Florence hit South Carolina, Interstate 95 through South Carolina was shut down for almost two weeks. You can just imagine what impact that had on trying to make commercial deliveries along the East Coast and the impact that it had on the economy. And that was largely as a result of Interstate 95 being built very close to the level of rivers and swamps that were along the system itself. Raising the elevation in those low-lying areas is something that we need to be looking at. Bridges that were built across rivers were built for floods that were anticipated to occur every 100 years. And we're seeing in some areas now those floods occurring as often as every two or three years. So we're clearly having instances where the structures that were built are not able to accommodate the size floods that we're experiencing from the intense storms. Even the ditches and the culverts that have been built along the interstate system itself were not built to be accommodating the types of storms that we're seeing as well. So we do have to be going in recognizing that we're having much more frequent intense storms and redesigning a lot of the drainage systems that we have to be able to accommodate those storms so that we're not shutting the system down, sometimes for days or weeks at a time as a result of the flooding. That's going to be expensive. Now, these seem more like brick and mortar, or let's say concrete and asphalt solutions to some of the issues. But let's uh, let's backtrack to Big idea number eight, where you mentioned that the plan is to transition more to electric, automated, and connected vehicles. In you and the committee's minds, where is technology in this picture? And are we on a back foot, or can we really expect technology to help cure this situation? There's uh, obviously not complete consensus in terms of how rapidly we anticipate that we will be moving to driverless vehicles or completely autonomous vehicles. But one thing we do know is that we eventually will be getting there. We need to be planning for it. We need to be planning for vehicles that are much more highly automated than they are today. 
we need to be planning for vehicles that can get information from the infrastructure itself that helps in terms of vehicle being able to take over some of the driving tasks, as well as really to be addressing some of the safety issues that we have today. So some of the most spectacular crashes that we have on the system today are where you will have backups or what we call queues on the system and vehicles that are traveling at speed suddenly come upon these queues and they don't have enough time or space to be able to stop to avoid hitting the vehicles. This is especially a problem in bad weather, say foggy conditions, where we often see some of the most spectacular crashes. So the system needs to be really retrofitted to be able to send out information about whether it's weather conditions or queue conditions or travel speed conditions to the vehicles that are on the system so that we don't have those types of crashes taking place that do. In many metropolitan areas, they use what are called ramp meters that will only allow enough vehicles onto the system as there is capacity to be able to handle them. Trying to use that type of technology on much more of the system so that we can be better managing the traffic so that it's flowing much more easily. Traffic management centers receiving information from vehicles that are on the system so that They have information about what travel speeds are, what the degree of congestion is, and can be sending information back to the vehicles so that decisions can be made either by the vehicle itself, if we have the technology for it, or by the drivers to be taking alternative routes so that they can be avoiding the very severe congestion uh, that we have and increasing the efficiency of the system uh, as a result. So there are just some examples to be preparing for the future. With regard to electric vehicles, we do expect over the next five to 10 years for a much, much larger portion of the fleet to become electric vehicles as the range for batteries continues to improve and the demand by consumers to be having more efficient vehicles also tends to drive them towards electric vehicles. And we have to make sure the charging infrastructure is in place along the interstate system to be able to accommodate the tremendous increase in electric vehicles that we're expecting. We can begin to see the 10 big ideas stitching together a solution. For example, you know, the resilience to climate change means we'll get Interstate 95 up above sea level reliably and more automated cars to reduce the numbers of accidents. The other big idea you wanted to revisit was raising the fuel tax How is that going to sit in the long-term view if more and more cars are going to be electric? Is that something that will have a a lifespan that is eventually retired, or will a fuel tax really be a big part of the long-term picture? The committee made very clear that the recommendation on increasing the fuel tax was a short-term recommendation until we get to the point that we're able to have per-mile charges. There is experimentation going on in several different states right now in terms of per mile charges. started in Oregon, but has spread to other states as well. And with GPS technology, we really anticipate probably within the next five to eight years that we will have the technology that will enable us to go to per mile charges if elected officials ultimately convert to that type of charging system. We think that that's going to be much more equitable 
completely electric vehicles are not paying any gasoline tax at all. But we also recognize it's going to take some time. So we do think that for the short term, we don't think we can be putting off making the investments. We need to be raising the money now. The fuel taxes are the most pragmatic way of doing it in the short term, but we ought to be trying to move to per mile charge as quickly as possible. In conversations you've had with other committee members and academy members, for that matter, what do you hear them saying most about the gravity of this situation? The state departments of transportation, which for almost all the interstate system, have the responsibility for maintaining and constructing the system, have done as good a job as they can given the resources that they have available. And the system has not fallen apart. And most drivers, I think, do not really have an appreciation of how close we are to the potential for very, very severe problems given the existing conditions. The report in some respects is starting to open some eyes in terms of the immediacy of the problem, the magnitude of the problem that we have. And one of the reasons why we're doing things like the show that I'm doing with you today is to try to better inform and educate uh, the general public as well as elected officials about the gravity and the magnitude of the issue so that our policymakers start to uh, address this in a very serious manner. Well, let's wrap up with another sort of big picture question. And this, in a sense, is where the rubber really meets the road here. With the future interstate report, and other research we have available to us. Is it possible to even begin calculating the future cost in dollars and lives if this situation isn't addressed in the manner you and the committee feel as though it should be? I think so far we really haven't talked about what the cost estimate was that the committee came up with after some analysis concluded that we currently invest about $21 billion per year in the interstate system. And depending upon the magnitude of traffic growth that we have, they said we need to somewhere on the order of double to triple that amount that we make investments. They did conclude that if we don't make those type of investments, we do have the potential for much greater impact to the economy for problems that we will have in the system, both in terms of potential shutdown of sections of the system and disruption that that would have, the disruption that we have from flooding events that take place today on the system, as well as the amount of congestion that we have as a result of not having enough capacity in the system. Although they did not go through and try to make estimates of that, there are tools available to be able to make some of those estimates. The committee was quite confident that if you do make those estimates, they would be far greater in terms of the impacts to the economy than what the cost will be of making the investments that they called for. Well, Neil, on behalf of the Americans who now travel 800 billion miles per year on our increasingly congested and aging interstate highway system, thank you for spending the time with us today to shed some more light on this issue. We hope that it translates into some uh, tangible solutions sooner rather than later. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, what I would like to just wrap up by saying is that anyone who's interested in getting more information, seeing a copy of the report or a summary of the report, they can go to the website interstate.trb.org. Again, that's interstate.trb.org. Thank you for adding that. There is available at that link a very concise summary 
and the 10 big ideas for everyone to look at and better inform themselves about this situation. Thank you again, Neil. Thank you, Eric. That's it for this week's edition of Hard Facts. This podcast is a production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Eric Kuhn.